Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Well, welcome, Sean Conlon, to Financially Speaking. And first of all, congratulations on Season 2 of The Deed Chicago. Thank you very much. I'm very excited and very excited to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I tell you, I was very fortunate enough to see some of the early episodes. And not only is this great television and so much wisdom through your mentoring folks, but this is really great drama. Trust me, these first these first. Well, there's six episodes, but uh, the first couple of episodes, I mean, you just don't really know where it's going, and it's not something you typically expect in in a show like this. So, speaking of not knowing where it's going, as many of you know who listen to my show, I kind of like this guy, Bruce Springsteen, and he he happens to get mentioned usually once a show, or there's usually a Springsteen quote, but I didn't know that today I'm speaking to the second most famous, who used to be the most famous guy from this little village in Ireland, Mount Prospect, is that? So Mount Prospect. Tell us the story. Outside. So I'm from a little village in Kildare called Rathangan, and there's a little town outside it called Mount Prospect. And for a long time, I had the claim to fame of being better known than the guy who was on the reality TV show. And things were looking beautiful till Bruce Springsteen did the DNA research and discover that his great-great-grandfather had immigrated from there during the famine, I believe, and knocked me right off the top of the charts. Mm. If you're going to lose to somebody, losing to Bruce Springsteen, you gotta, I you, can handle it. If you're going to lose to the boss, you lose to the boss. But uh, apparently his great-great-grandmother, Ann Garrity, yeah, sorry, yeah. came here from, you know, from another town, and, and she was 14 uh, years old when she left Ireland for Freehold, New Jersey. And the rest, I think, all Bruce true? fans know the history. <laughs> so... The reality is you are actually an accidental reality star, so to speak, if I have it right. Um, you're, you're not this guy that was out there pursuing celebrity or fame. Just really enjoy helping people, which I have to tell you, in, in the world of reality television, that's really refreshing. But the reality is you're an accidental reality star who, if I have this right, you're not pursuing celebrity or fame. You just enjoy helping people. Yes, I accidentally fell into the business. Um, I'm an immigrant. And... While it sounds very traditional, I came to America penniless, unlike Bruce's family. I mean, I came by air right, and not on a coffin ship. <laughs> um, and I worked as an assistant janitor. And there was a gentleman in the building who nicknamed me Subtitles, which in these politically correct times may not be so funny, but he said I didn't speak English. Uh, subsequently, he looked to borrow some money off me four years later. He had seen me driving down the street in a Range Rover, and he said only the Windsors or Third World Dictators had a Range Rover. Mm-hmm. And I lent him $7,000, or gave it to him, and he went off and met Men of Honor, the barber shop. He became a very well-known movie director. Mm-hmm. And he was doing something in 2008 and nine with uh, CNBC, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to come along as an advisor. Oh, we'll get, let's get back. I want okay, to go, go, go even further uh, okay, back. Okay, sorry. Right? So... Your first story, which is really the one other people wrote, and then you had to live it. So for you, that began in that small village we just talked about in Ireland, in a house with seven people in a town of 900. 
That's correct. With 17 bars. That is correct. That's my okay. favorite part. <laughs> so I am a product of an Ireland that lived up to lots of its stereotypes. We had a very small village, and at one point there were 17 bars. Now, today I understand that was market saturation. Back then, it was just a very wonderful, convenient way to fall from bar to bar and get around. But I'm half-joking. It was a wonderful culture. I worked in one of those bars at night, and we had a library. We actually had a mobile library, Mm -hmm. which I spent a huge amount of time reading in. And only in Ireland would the librarian eventually come down to my mother to complain that I was over-reading and causing her a lot of headaches because I was asking for extra books. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I was actually going to go there because I know that you love to read. So who, who did you read about and admire when, so, when you were reading these books? So growing up, I had some weird habits. I mean, I thought, I thought myself fly fishing, which I'm a fanatical fly fisher mm. to this day. I thought myself falconry, and I think I was preparing myself to be landed gentry someday, which obviously turns out I wasn't going to be, maybe. But I read mostly about American success stories. I was obsessed with stories, and I read about Getty and Vanderbilt and mm-hmm. Carnegie. Right. And kind the of by way of- Industrialists. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the, the, the robber barns. Sure. But what is kind of fascinating, purely serendipitously, I throw a Christmas party every year in Mayfair in London, and every one of those families, somebody from that family is accidentally represented at those parties. Wow. I wish my dad was alive because uh, he used to understand when I told him that, like every single family you read about, the Vanderbilts, all of them, they all come to that party. That's by amazing. And a few Rockefeller sneaks in, in every now everybody. and then. Uh, Fake uh, ones and real Rockefeller. So you moved to London. So what was your first job there? And, and, and you know, so when you I dropped out of, I dropped out of college. Um, we were not a, we were a poor family, but everybody was poor in our village. Right. So you didn't know you were particularly poor. But then I got to London, I realized I was really poor. So I applied for 100 jobs. And this, mm-hmm. again, is where I have such a love of America. Uh, nobody would interview me. It was the 80s. Being Irish in England was a bad thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we were blowing them up and they were mm-hmm. disliking it. And, yeah. But that was all in the past. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And now they're just retirement yeah. accounts. That's all. And okay. we're, we're wonderful. We all get along fabulously, thank God. But so I couldn't get a job. And then Lehman Brothers gave me a job. Hmm. Now, I didn't, don't blame me for what happened there. No, this is long before <laughs> that. that so no and I was an assistant on the foreign exchange desk. Mm-hmm. And I got my first taste of the incredible Americanism that existed around the world in the 80s. Right. And then you went over to America. Well, just so while working at Lehman Brothers, I loaded mail trains at night. Okay. So I worked in day mm-hmm. as at Lehman Brothers with a very minor job. And at night I loaded mail trains. And I'm standing on the train platform one night and I'm like, I'm going to be average the rest of my life. And none of the books I read in the library mm-hmm. were written about average people. No. So I'm like, I don't want to be one of those. Right. So I get off the train and I dropped in town and say goodbye to my mother and father because I mightn't see them for a long time. Sure. Uh, which I didn't. And I came to America. Wow. I had fifth cousins who had found us when they were researching the roots. <laughs> we didn't get Springsteen, unfortunately. No. And they got me a job as an assistant to a janitor. Could you have imagined the success you'd get in America? I mean, I mean, it's yes. not even. I read about it. See, and that's the that's the lesson right there. That is the you were able to imagine it. You read about it. You had your own tribe of mentors, as 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 Tim Ferriss would say, and you know, and and you knew what to expect. But you got to start somewhere. So, assistant janitor, how'd that happen? 
So congratulations on that. I was an assistant janitor in an incredibly bad one. I caused more leaks. I broke more stuff. And I had a really annoying habit of asking tenants, how is everything? Like I was Dr. Phil. Right. And one day my boss was standing behind me. And when they left him, he gave me a solid kick, which he did to the arse. He gave me a good kick. He says, don't ever ask a tenant, is everything okay? Because rest assured, you'll get a list of answers. I was a terrible assistant janitor. But you learned a lot. Oh, my God. I learned what not to do, which I continue doing hmm. throughout my entire life. I make all the mistakes, but I make them once. So... In, in looking at this journey, um, and again, like we talk about, there's always going to be failures along the path, and people learn more from these mistakes as they make that, you know, to find the success. So what do you think has made you such a great success in real estate? Because you changed a lot of neighborhoods with your work. You started as the assistant janitor, but, you know, along those ways, there must be some stories. Yeah, I mean, there are way too many to retell and mm-hmm. bore you all to death. But I will tell you this, I, 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 made, I made so many mistakes, but I say all the time on my show, there's very little to be learned from the second kick from a mule. And so I never made the same mistake twice. But one interesting mistake I made was I picked a neighborhood to cold call in. Mm-hmm. And I very aggressively called it on Friday evening. After I four months of no success, I, I decided to drive up to the neighborhood and walk around it, which is what I advise people they should do. I discovered it was a very orthodox Jewish neighborhood, mm-hmm. and Friday evening is a very hard time to get anybody home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're not picking up the phone. <laughs> no, for, they're not. Even if they are So home. then I walked so. around the neighborhood and talked to everybody. That was my first market I, I focused on. <laughs> That's a great story. Oh, my God. So listen, I know personally, because I like to forget 2008 to 2010 from from my day job as a financial advisor. Um, But I can only imagine the pain and difficulty that that brought to a real estate investor. So you lived through that period. Tell us about it and you know what really what you learned from okay, that. Okay, so I would say 2008 was the real makings of who I am. Up till 2008, there's a great expression I heard once and it was said about me by an old Southern guy, which I don't fully agree with, but it's very funny. He said, son, even a turkey will fly in a hurricane. And that was in 2007. I was way too successful for my own good. I was asleep at the wheel like a lot of people in 2008 happened. But I was in a weird place. I wasn't a massively leveraged real estate guy. Worse, I'd lent out a ton of money. Uh-huh. So it was a merchant bank, mezzanine fund. Mm-hmm. And so we had hundreds of millions of dollars on the street. Uh, I had the good fortune of the most amazing partner called Joe Scobie, who was UBS's Mm -hmm. chief risk officer. So if I could have asked for anybody to stand beside me, I couldn't have asked for anybody better. Right. And he believed that the assets would survive this. Mm -hmm. But it was the most scary time ever because I didn't know where anything was. I'd gotten complacent and I was scared to death. I got up every day sick to my stomach. And you know, I thought for a minute that maybe I had gotten really lucky for like 15 or 20 sure. years. But they say you can't tell a champion by how he behaves when he's winning. No. You can tell a champion by how he behaves when he got knocked down. Absolutely. And you know what I did? I did what I knew how to do better than anybody else. I worked harder than anybody else. Right. We took the assets back. I used the last of my money with my partners to buy the senior positions. Mm-hmm. And we saved a $100 million mezzanine fund. We got all the money back. There I'll may be, be like, five folks, there may be like... 5% that got saved. I mean, <laughs> if, every if, mezzanine fund yeah. probably went to yeah, zero. Exactly. I got our investors every penny back. <sighs> I have no hair, as you can tell from yeah, the experience. Yeah, well, that's uh, <laughs> same here. And it, it 
that these, these experiences in life will, will do but that. But it really made me realize who I was. Right, right. So at, at that age, whatever it was now, I was 40, mm-hmm. I actually finally grew up and knew who I was. That's great. That's great. So, so how did you do the deed, so to speak? I mean, you talked about it before um, a little bit, but, but you know, the idea of the show, where did that come from? And, you know, and I'll get so, off the ground. Yeah. So I was helping, I was helping a friend out who I'd met when I was a janitor in 1990. He'd nicknamed me Subtitles, mm-hmm. which was a very clever name. I subsequently lent him some money in my first year in real estate, and he went off and made some very successful movies, Men of Honor, The Barbershop. I knew he'd met it when I sat beside De Niro at his wedding. Yeah, that'll do it. It was pretty amazing. Yep. To this day, we're best friends and mm-hmm. Godfathers as kids. Mm-hmm. But he was working on a deal with CNBC, and he decided he needed some gravitas and real estate expertise, and he brought me in to be his kind of advisor. But sure. it was around 2009-10, and the premise was I would have played a real estate mogul. And, you know, some people can play a mogul on television and become president. No, that's what I hear. I wasn't a good enough actor. (laughs) Yeah. And I said to them, I honestly can't play that role because I don't feel like one. And I'm on my way quickly to maybe not being one. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, at the time, Jim Ackerman was developing the thing. He stayed on me. And every six months, he would check in with an idea. And like three years later... I finally felt, felt slightly mogulish mm-hmm. again. <laughs> and I said, I can do this. And so they put this show together. And it is fantastic, not because I'm on it. It's real. It's authentic. And I genuinely get to teach people. And I lend all my own money out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're, hitting, you're hitting every base. And, and you know, your role, for, for those that haven't seen the show, and, and certainly you got to be turning on CNBC and watching it. But, Sean's role is uh, helping house flippers and developers who've either run out of money or who need support and mentoring. Um, And there are a lot of people out there that are in that situation. And I know we could talk forever about it, but you've got some specific tips for house flippers. And and maybe I I thought it might be a good idea to kind of take us through some individually and and maybe weave some examples, you know, from the new season, because I thought these were... These were particularly really, really great. Yeah. So, you know, common sense is not that common. And in an age where we're the most connected generations ever, we're the least connected. So firstly, I would say most of my success initially came from real estate, from walking the neighborhood, cycling around the neighborhood. You can't figure anything out online. You miss every nuance. You, You know, Go out, walk around, talk to everybody. That is how I found my greatest deals I've ever done. I bought a huge hotel once in Chicago because the doorman told me that there were some interestingly well-dressed people looking at the building. Then secondly, pick the phone up. Stop emailing. Mm -hmm. I'm horrendous. I am the (laughs) angriest emailer you've ever met, and I don't mean it. I'm rushing between planes and stuff. Exactly. People are like, oh, what a dick. Yeah. But I'm actually not being a total dick. Right, right. It's just just the nature of the beast. I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk has this great saying, in the age of Jetsons, you got to go Flintstone. And I mean, I think that says it all. Back to basics. That was my mantra. When I started the last real estate brokerage that I sold, Mm -hmm. that was our mantra. Back to basics. <laughs> and it worked. And, and absolutely. So obviously you're picking up the phone that, you know, you're talking to people and, and, and we're such a disconnected society today. So that that's even more important that, um, and you've talked about how you were a reader from yeah, day I'm one. I'm a ferocious reader. So what'd you learn about 
this particular part of you know flipping houses that really helped you? So I would say in, in that instance, some, this is going to sound really basic too. It's important to understand the psyche of the country that you're in at the time or the market you're in. So I don't expect you to read the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, but I would read the front page of the mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal, which I do every morning. Right. Always did. You know, to get started, you read inspirational books about guys who've made it. Right. It's very hard, these books, like, don't read a book, How to Make It With No Money Down. It's a big, that's a total scam. When you find some way to buy real estate with no money down, give me a shout because I'm in. It doesn't exist. But if you read books about people who struggled and made it, first you're inspired. Then you just read everything you can about what's going on in the neighborhood. And you talk to people who know what's going on. That's it. There's no silver bullet to making it in home flipping Mm. or real estate. It's purely hands-on knowledge that you pick up on the street. Now, do you find, I mean, Chicago's just one of those unique cities. It's just incredible. But you've, I'm sure, traveled a lot around this country. So do you feel that a lot of what you've seen in Chicago certainly could be happening in Philadelphia and Baltimore and oh, know, it, other, it, other cities? Oh, it's happening everywhere. Like yeah. people said, you know, Sean, you caught a wave that nobody would ever see in Chicago because yeah. I was at the forefront of this change around Wrigley Field. But that being said, I've owned places in, I've owned places in California. I've owned real estate in Boston, North Carolina, Florida. The same fundamentals apply. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with people. Right. Don't ever forget, real estate, the real estate business involves people, and people don't change. They have the same wants, likes, needs, insecurities. They make the same mistakes over and over again. So if you can understand people, you can understand the real estate business. Is there something about the personality you know, after watching a number of the episodes of the show, you know, they're, they're very different personalities I noticed in the episodes, really, really unique. And I'm wondering if there's this thread that, that you found while doing the show and also doing your own investing of the type of people that this makes sense for. And maybe some people should just just know that it's not for them. Like I'm a Scorpio and, 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 and we, 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 we just shouldn't do anything. We should just hide at times. You got to know who you are. But, you know, a gentleman in the second episode, I don't want to give too much away. Um, you know, I was, I, the first 15 minutes and 20 minutes, I'm doubting where is this going and, 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 and why, why is this man spending any time with him? But you saw something. What did you see, for example, in that guy? So in, 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 my, in my career, I probably sold 5,000 properties as a real estate broker, and that's between 93 and 99. Right. A huge volume, right? right? Met hundreds of thousands and of people. And that's all in Chicago? All in Chicago, right. mm-hmm. just on the north side. Right. So I became a decent study of people. I don't have too many gifts, and I'm, I'm not smarter than anybody else, but I read people well in situations, some mm-hmm. from experience, some intuitive, right. from intuition. But... I do recognize things quickly in people. So his poor behavior at the start of the show came from massive insecurity. And he, he would go into a shell. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can tell this part because mm-hmm. we on the show, when he was a teenager, he had gotten arrested in Florida in a gang with guns in the car. Mm-hmm. And he'd gotten banged up. He'd gone yeah. to jail. Right. He's the most remarkable redemption story. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a phenomenal it really story. Is. You could be forgiven in the first 10 minutes to think that he was being a complete ass, mm-hmm. but he was being massively insecure. He was overwhelmed. So what do I do in that case? I make him stop and breathe and take a step back so that he can understand that the reason he's acting crazy is he's too many things going on. Right. 
And that is what we did. So I had to, you know, dismantle them a little bit to rebuild them. Right. Not he thought he, he it's like 12 or 13 properties sitting yeah, he's out doing there. doing them all poorly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he was and, totally overwhelmed. Right. And that's why he was behaving so badly. And I got to that. I also figured out very quickly that Cecilia, who was his wonderful girlfriend standing quietly in the right. background, was the power behind the throne. She really helped me help him rationalize it. I would also say the brains. Yeah, you know, she really very was. Very smart yeah, woman. She was a very smart woman. And interestingly, on the first episode, we have a spectacularly oh, smart woman. Brilliant, brilliant woman. And, and it was, it, you know, and just the comparison between the two, you know, here's this woman that's, you know, has done all these amazing restaurants and you, you, you dine at some of them and, and I think hotels and, yeah. and just a number of different things throughout Chicago. And, and, and it was so interesting that, that, that she was struggling. And what's even more amazing about this, so she came from a very poor background. I think it was a single mom. Mm -hmm. And she really pulled herself up by her bootstraps. And, but she was struggling for another reason. She, she, had, she made the one mistake I often criticize people on. Don't bring an incredible designer taste to a home flip. Because... You know, no one's going to want your Louis Vuitton wallpaper. Exactly. Or no one wants the bonds again. And that right. was her flaw. Right. She's bringing this incredible high-end design to home flip. You need to appeal to the widest mass audience possibly. And that's what I had to teach her to do. Do you think, is home flipping something, is it cyclical? Is it there's just, there's, there's the, the right time to do it? And, and, and then there's, I mean, like in the middle of a recession, you wait for the recession and jump in or... What do you think so, about that? let me tell you this. So, like everything, it's cyclical, and we're sitting here right, right now, and we're seeing another cycle occur. But I will tell you this. There, it is still possibly one of the few places left in the United States of America that an ordinary person like me could do something extraordinary. Like, I say this all the time. The odds of me or you being Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, we probably statistically have a better chance of being hit by a meteorite. I think right. that's oh, a statistical I, I, I fact. Think so. sure. But any one of us could possibly be a home flipper. Right. And it is still the gateway. I would have said the, or the Cubs winning the World Series, but it happened. So hey, it I, just proves that anything can I went can happen. to some of those games, <laughs> and I must confess, I am, I am going to be very shallow here, and I'm not a huge, uh, I wasn't a Cubs fan at mm -hmm. all, but I'm a big fan of the Ricketts who own it. Sure. And you have an actor in this country who I've known for 28 years called John Cusack. Yes. Who forced me to come to a playoff game. I'm well, no, sure he, he did. He forced me to come to the initial game. He said, if you don't come to one of the initial games, you're not coming to the playoff. Yeah, no, no, no. You have to follow the strategy with Cusack, with Bill Murray. I mean, the Cub fans, it's got to be a certain way. But I said, you know what? I'm like, fine, I'll go to this one dumb game because the odds of me getting stuck at a playoff are zero to yeah. Cubs. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, everyone wants tickets, and I had my playoff tickets courtesy of oh. John Cusack. Oh, God. Yeah. Name drop. Sorry about that. No, but that's all right. He's. I just actually saw him speak recently. Uh, a friend of mine, Rich Russo, interviewed him. Um, I think it was like the 25th anniversary of Say Anything, and he did this little mini tour. And uh, what, a, what a great guy. I met him. Oh, and yeah, just, just, just. Lunatic Cubs fan. Oh, 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 yeah. He needs help. Well, you know, it's interesting. And, and, and I think, I don't know if you saw last Sunday night's episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Which oh, huge was, uh, fan. So, my favorite show. So Larry David, um, like <laughs> yeah. our, our, our Gary Vaynerchuk, who I mentioned, and, and myself are huge Jet fans. Oh, boy. And when you suffer with a team like the New York Jets, or you suffer with a team like the Detroit Lions, where my wife's family is from, which has never been to a my Super sympathies. Bowl. Um, and I'm a Met fan. I mean, you, it, it, First of all, it builds this character, but it's really interesting because some of the most creative, interesting people that we've had 
in our generation, in well, I'll just we'll just say at least in the entertainment and music industry, they're rabid baseball fans. Not any other sport. Yeah, I think of Jerry Seinfeld. There is no bigger New York Met fan than Jerry Seinfeld. It probably gives you a lot of time to think and come up with material because the games are so damn long. Exactly. Well, that that's probably it. Plus, you know what it's like to be down. And I mean, soft. you have you have a saying here. This is perfect. No matter how bad it may get, go for a walk or for a run. Well, when you're when you're a fan of one of these teams. Boy, you're running all over the place. Yeah, it, it, if you're a Jets fan or Lions fan, it's probably going to be a very long walk, I'm suggesting. Yeah. Off a short pier. That's if true. Larry, if Larry David was correct and Kirby through oh, last week. <laughs> well, the next day always presents a whole new opportunity to start fresh, as you say, which I think is is, is so, so true. Um, I'm a huge, not to jump around, a huge fan of the, the, huge fan mm-hmm. of the history of the First World War. And I think that I visited the site a couple of years ago on the 100th anniversary of my own. Right. And Trench Warfare is a perfect example. Those guys used to think, let's just stay alive till the morning and let's hope they don't send us over the top. And then one day, the war was over. So I tell everybody, get up tomorrow. It's a new day. Your world might change. Were you as crushed as I was that 1917 didn't win the Oscar? I was, but I, that you know what? Amazing film, the way that was shot. H- having been to the site, it is one of the most incredible experiences i've ever had did they cap did they capture have, i'd love to i haven't been to this to that so, site but while they captured it i have we have another rathangan story so mm-hmm. mount prospect where springsteen's family right. came from my grand my grand uncle my grandfather lived in that that beside them where they came from and my grand uncle signed up in in his late teens to join the british army for the first world war and he died in the first week of the Battle of the Somme. And so I went to the Cenotab where there's 50,000 names or whatever on it, and I found his name on it. That is an incredibly wow. compelling thing. And at the same time, my grandfather was fighting for Irish independence back in Ireland. Sure. At the same time. It was a crazy piece of history for me. It really is. And uh, well, we could talk history. I, lo- I love history, and there's just there's so much. Once Springsteen's involved. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it, Springsteen tends to be involved. but he gets uh, in everywhere. Yeah, we won't get into people. I, mean, I can't believe what he did with Henry VIII that night they went out. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I really like to do with, with the guests that I have on the show are people that are doing other amazing things to really help our world. And, and for anyone that knows me and knows how much I love dogs and love animals, I, I have a soft spot for anybody who's doing anything in that world. And, and what I've learned over the last few weeks about what you've done with the Conlon Wildlife Foundation, which I believe you run with, with your sister, That's correct. Um, I, I, I think is amazing. And, and I'm just going to use the Gandhi quote right off your website because it just says it all. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. Honestly, Gandhi may have said a lot of great things. I don't know if there's anything better than that. No, and before you come in, Ashley, who does my publicity, and I were talking about my trip and her trip to India, where I went on a tiger safari, Mm. and what an amazing country. But, you know, it's interesting. There is nothing, and I'm a cynic when it comes to people in some ways because of my life experiences, There's nothing loves you as unconditionally as a dog or mm-hmm. an animal, but right. particularly a dog. Right. It'll always lick your face yep. when you come home. Mm-hmm. If you're out late, it's not going to lecture I, you. Uh, It'll just be a little sad and wag its tail a Today's one of more. those days, folks, where we're, we're taping this, and, and it's not a particularly wonderful day in the stock market. And honestly, I cannot wait to get home and see my two dogs. 
What type of dogs do you have? We have, uh, we always rescue dogs. Yeah, we have, good. Currently, we have a, a yellow lab named Brody. He's around nine. And Leonard, <laughs> Leonard is one of the funniest dogs we've owned. He, he's a, a Yorkie poo um, who was living with a family that had two babies very quickly and never took them for walks. And the dog had more anxiety than, it was just, it was just brutal. And now is just this really sweet dog. And was he and, named and after the, Leonard Cohen? No, they just they just named him. Yeah. I, I didn't name the dogs. I mean, they you know Brody <laughs> I named for Mar, for Martin Brodeur. As we talked, I'm a hockey fan. But uh, Leonard had his name, and how could you change the name of Leonard? I mean, Leonard's such a he such was, a great. He was name. obviously named after an accountant. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I would think so. But I, I like to believe Leonard Cohen. I'll, I'll go with the okay, I'll okay, go with the music. So thing. yes, I'm sorry. So, so, so how do people get involved with? What you're doing with the foundation, well, first they, of all. You know, we, we generally privately do most of that stuff ourselves. And there's small projects where you can have an impact, right? Mm-hmm. So my sister went and lived in Kerala, India, and helped run a, a dog rescue center. She raised money to buy an elephant in Namibia so it wouldn't be hunted. So mm-hmm. she really spearheads these projects fantastically. We're obsessed with animals. We grew up with them. My right. father loved animals. We had all sorts of crazy sure. animals around the house. We had a wonderful collection of of dogs, and one of our favorite rescues was a guy who we named Box Willy. <laughs> and we had these giant mastiffs who were 170 pounds weight. He was huge; he's as big as a car. But Box Willy and Archie were tiny little dogs. They were the bosses. Yes. So sometimes you'd be coming home, you'd see like six dogs heading up the road, which they weren't supposed to, because Box Willy and Archie decided they were going for a walk, and the mastiffs and the German shepherds just followed them everywhere. <laughs> so. Obsessed with animals. Right. I would just say, be kind to animals anywhere you can. And anytime you can, obviously, save a dog, particularly, mm-hmm. do. Better than buying one. You really should. I'm guilty of having bought a very expensive German Shepherd once that was trained for the CIA. That's okay. And I detrained him. Mm-hmm. I had to send him back for retraining. Right. And they're like, what is going on with this dog? Well, it was when Jer- mm-hmm. you know, when. Jersey Shore was on, right? And him and I would sit in bed. Don't blame us for that. And we would eat popcorn. I'd pay like, (laughs) shamedly, I paid fifty thousand dollars in midlife crisis for the dog. And he goes down to the place and they say, "Mr. Conlon, we've discovered the issue with the dog." I'm like, "Okay, we'd like you to fly down." So I'm like, Mm -hmm. flying down Mm -hmm. to Carolina, see what's wrong with this faulty dog. The dog's jumping six foot fences. He's basically killing people. They Mm -hmm. look at me like. You, sir, are the problem, Mr. Conlon. So I had to be retrained. Wow. Let's, well, let's, anytime we, we, we've met with any trainers with any dogs, they've always blamed us. It's never the, it's never the dog. And by the way, 50000 for a dog. I met someone that spent more when we were uh, in Italy, which I don't know if I ever get, ever get back to again, but hopefully when they open it up, I will. But He was uh, worth every penny, but uh, I would say... Better to rescue twenty dogs. For yeah, prices. I know. Well, this dog hunts. This was a truffle hunter, um, and it was really? uh, it was at a vineyard, and oh, um, cool. and actually the the guy happens to be really good friends with um, uh, with Jack Nicholas, and this was a really fascinating tour that we did. And then he t- walked walked us around, and and we met his dog, and he was telling me the story, and you know how they're trained in Germany, and yeah. and you know this one, I think he 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 you know he he bought for forty five thousand. And already he knows he's selling it for ninety five thousand oh, or something. Wow. I mean, the do- it's unbelievable how you know how well trained they are. And certainly in Italy and France, and you know when it comes to truffles, there that's <laughs> well. Astro lived his whole life with his, no animal of ours is ever for sale. Yeah, well, the same here. That's for sure. I mean, they're they're too wonderful. So, what I'd like to do to end the show is is have you share from from so many experiences some. Some keys to achieving the American dream that that others can learn from you. So I'm going to put it another way. 
And let's say today I say to you that you can have a billboard. The whole world can see. What would be on it? Can it have a few more words than I would be able to pay for? Okay. And I'll even give you three billboards. But what are the messages that you would want up there and why? Okay. So we'll start with America, right? I would put land of opportunity in exclamation marks still because it truly is the most level playing field in the world, America. I definitely think America is the most perfect creation of immigrants. Let's not lose sight of that. Right. Immigration makes America great. It always has been. Give us Bruce Springsteen. Yes. (laughs) And Sean Conlon. (laughs) So I would say, (laughs) America, stay open for business. Mm -hmm. You have the most incredible playing field in the world. Let everybody come and play. And may the best man win. Mm. Well, Bruce Springsteen has a song. We'll probably end with it. uh, The Land of Hope and Dreams. And also another song, American Land, which is an Irish jig, which is a phenomenal song, which I'm going to, if you don't own, I'm going to get you that record because that's just just one of the great. Well, Sean, thank you so much. And folks, you can check out The Deed on Wednesday nights on CNBC. I believe, check your local listing. Yes. Is, it, is it the same time in each time zone? Or? You're asking the worst yeah. self-promoter Well, ever. check your local listing. You, you, check you, your local listing. I always love, love to say that. But, um, and, and obviously, CNBC. Uh, the Deed Chicago, you, you, yeah. Yeah, and you can find the shows on YouTube. And, and um, it's just, just, just so much fun. Really, really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you spending time today. And um, Resonate Recording, thank you so much for all of your work. Ashley, who's been terrific in finding me just amazing folks like Sean. Um, and, and she's a new homeowner. Absolutely. So all oh, of it. oh boy. Well, a flipper or an actual owner? <laughs> no, she'll need therapy. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. And folks, remember, when you're saving for your future, pay yourself first. Have a great week. <laughs>